Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. For today's episode, I've invited back to Beyond Your Newsfeed our knowledgeable and insightful team of American politics experts, Professor Adam Myers and Professor Matt Gordino. Uh, I've asked them to discuss the state of American politics this summer of 2022. Now, that's a very broad topic, but there's been a lot going on in American politics in the last uh, few months, and I think uh, we have uh, things we need to talk about. Uh, These last few weeks have reduced a variety of interesting topics, all with implications for the upcoming midterm national elections this fall. Most directly, States across the nation have been holding primaries to select candidates for the fall elections, including candidates for Congress and for state offices. In recent weeks, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol has had several newsmaking and fascinating public hearings. And if that were not enough, as its term ended, the U.S. Supreme Court released several blockbuster decisions on guns, abortion, environmental regulation, and public prayer, reflecting the muscle and ambition of the court's solid conservative majority. So Matt, Adam, and I have much to ruminate about in the next hour. Uh, And let's get to it. Professors Myers and Guardino, welcome once again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Always good to be on, Bill. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be back. Okay, let's start out with the primary elections. And I'll just throw out a general question. What what do you think uh, so far? Now, we have to uh, acknowledge that there's still some primaries to be held in a number of states uh, up until the beginning of September. Uh, But lots of states have already held their primaries, uh, setting up the the contest between between Democrats and Republicans for a number of offices. So uh, in what you're seeing so far, Uh, What are some major takeaways uh, from uh, what's happened in these primaries across the country? Um, Adam, you want to start us off? Sure. So you're right, Bill. Uh, Essentially, at this point, I think slightly more than half of the states have held their primaries. So we're a little more than halfway through and and we have a bit of a lull now. Uh, I don't think uh, that there are any states that are holding primaries in the next few weeks. Could be wrong about that. But then a whole bunch of states are going to be holding their primaries in August and early September, and then the the primary season will be over around then. Um, And so I think, you know, there were several questions going into the primary season uh, that that were kind of consuming election pundits and political prognosticators and so forth. So on the Republican side, one of the big questions was, well, how well are kind of the, uh, the Trumpian sort of candidates, the ones that receive Trump's endorsement, um, how well are they going to do versus kind of more mainstream Republican candidates, for lack of a better way to put it? Um, And and really, more specifically, just how much value does Trump's endorsement have in Republican primary contests? And I think that at this point, what we can say is that with regards to Trump's record in particular, it's mixed. he has uh, ha- endorsed a number of candidates that have gone on to win the Republican nominations, 
And in some cases, his endorsements have proven, I think, quite pivotal. Um, for example, you know, in the Ohio Senate race, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that J.D. Vance is the Republican nominee for Senate from Ohio because of Trump's endorsement. Um, but then there's a wide array of other races in which Trump's endorsee lost the Republican primary. Um, so in you know, multiple races in Georgia and several congressional races in North Carolina and South Carolina um, and, and Nevada and Nebraska as well. And so I think uh, the upshot of all of this is that Trump's endorsement matters, but it's not the whole ballgame um, and that it's not the only thing motivating Republican primary voters. Um, an interesting trend that has been noticed by many folks is that the Democrats uh, and Democrat-aligned groups have been meddling in Republican primaries, in some cases funding ads on behalf of far-right candidates that they think will be easier to beat in the general election. Right, so this, this happened in the Pennsylvania governor's race um, where uh, the the, uh, a far-right MAGA Republican named, named, I think, Doug Mastriano won the Republican primary. Um, happened in the Illinois governor's race too, um, and several, several other races. And uh, it's, I think, a very risky strategy on Democrats' part because they think these folks will be easier to beat in the general election. But uh, many of them are, you know, election deniers and truthers and so forth. And so if they happen to win, um, which in, a, in an environment like this is certainly possible, um, that could create a lot of problems uh, for the American political system as a whole, I would say. Can um, I ask, let's get Matt's view on that. Matt, do you think it's a risky strategy for the Democrats? I think to, to call it risky would be a severe understatement. In fact, I find it dumbfounding in this context. I mean, I understand it. It's logic, right? A sort of classic kind of political play uh, for kind of more normal times in American politics. Uh, but given the nature of many of these candidates and given the stakes involved, I think it's bordering on irresponsible, um, particularly, you know, things like the Pennsylvania governor's race and these, these state races where whoever wins could have significant power over some of the uh, election mechanics. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as the show goes on, uh, particularly in 2024 and um, you know, not only not a really good use of the Democrats' time and energy and money, but pretty um, uh, uh, dangerous, uh, I would say, for uh, for democracy. Yeah, you know, especially in, in a state like Pennsylvania, where uh, Mastriano could win. I mean, it's not like uh, he's he's going to necessarily lose there. There's lots of reasons to think that the Republicans could, in this midterm especially, with uh, and we can talk about more about this later, the, the general disenchantment with the Democrats nationally, uh, the Republicans could could sweep in Pennsylvania, and that would put a Republican you know, election denier uh, in control of, of what is probably going to be a swing state in the 2025 presidential election. Um, and, and there's already a legislature there, a Republican-controlled legislature, and the only you know, assurance that uh, there won't be some shenanigans in Pennsylvania as if, uh, as, as if uh, a, a more moderate Republican uh, might be in, in office there. Um, so I, th I would agree with both of you that it, it seems to me a very risky strategy. Understandable, but uh, 
you know, foolish. I think it's something that that uh, that shouldn't have happened. But so we all agree on that. Okay. It's not just foolish. It it I would say it actually sort of undermines the Democrats' case that they are the quote unquote pro democracy party, the party that is trying to save American democracy. If they are you know meddling in these Republican primaries on behalf of anti democracy candidates, um, I would say that that message wears a little thin. And 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 to the extent that it's the electorate aware of this. It, it really undermines even more the democratic image. I mean, this, this, for the ordinary person, this looks like, you know, underhanded politics. This is not the way things are supposed to go. Matt, you wanted to say something about that. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to make sure that before we, you know, move on from the primaries that, I mean, Adam made a good point that the sort of Trump endorsed candidates had mixed results, which is true. But I think we need to think about endorsement in a little different way. And this is a strange political phenomenon because the Trump brand, so to speak, is not just about who he endorses, per se. Um, It's about the the fact that the Trump brand is inherently tied up now with election denialism. Right. And so um, not only some of the candidates that we were just talking about who might actually have some power and control, but also even some of the folks who are not really seen as, as closely aligning with Trump, um, maybe their rhetoric is a little bit softer, but you know, questioning the legitimacy of the 2020 results is a pretty mainstream Republican position right now when it comes to Republican elites, even those some of whom Trump didn't endorse, if that makes sense. And so uh, it's a mixed result for Trump, but you know, Trump's quote unquote narrative and some of the forces associated with him, I think still have a lot of uh, a lot of energy right to put it mildly and i think that we're going to see that right going forward in these elections i definitely agree with that but i i would say that even if you sort of move up the ladder of generality and and look not just at candidates that received trump's endorsement but also just more generally candidates that are kind of um, engaged or using this kind of election denial or election questioning rhetoric uh even there, right, the record has been mixed in terms of those candidates' success. There, there have definitely been Republicans who have um, affirmed the results of the 2020 presidential election, who have won their primaries, right? The, the most obvious, uh, the, the most important examples being um, the uh, governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, and the Georgia Secretary of State, um, right, uh, Rappensberger, I believe is his name. Uh, and so, um, and so Matt, Matt is, is correct that this rhetoric and, and this general viewpoint has, has seeped into all corners of the Republican Party, and it goes beyond merely the people that, that Trump has endorsed. But um, I don't think it's, it represents, I, I, I'm not even sure it would represent at this point half of the folks who have won the Republican nominations for Congress. I'm not sure about that. I haven't done the, the math. Um, but uh, but it, but there are certainly many folks who have won the Republican nomination this year who have not engaged in that rhetoric. Um, and the, and the other thing I would say is that we don't yet know how um, the six Republicans who voted to impeach Trump and who are running for re-election, um, we don't know for sure what's going to happen to them. I mean, only 
right? The guy in South Carolina, Tom Rice, his primary happened a few weeks ago. He lost, right? But it remains to be seen whether Liz Cheney um, will lose her, um, her primary. I expect she will, but her strategy is to get enough uh, Democrats in Wyoming to cross over and vote in the Democratic primary or in the Republican primary to pull her over the top. And who knows, that may be a successful strategy. And there, and there's several other Republicans who voted to impeach Trump who are on the ballot in August. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens to them. Speaking of Liz Cheney, Adam, do you happen to know what the filing deadline is for the general election in Wyoming? Could Liz Cheney lose the primary and then run as an independent? Oh, uh, I don't know what the laws in Wyoming are in regards to that. Most states have sore loser laws that prevent that. Um, not all states, uh, but um, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure what Wyoming's laws are. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't either. We should have looked that up before we started recording here. Uh, but, but I would think that that would be an option if, if it's legally possible. Uh, right. And right. she might, she, she might in a, in a three-way race, she might very well win. But, but I think you're right. I think she still has a chance in the Republican primary, but probably a small chance. Correct. But we know, given probability theory, that 20% probability can sometimes occur, right? Absolutely. Any, uh, what about the, what do you see as the really uh, competitive races uh, shaping up for this fall? in both gubernatorially and in the Senate, maybe even a couple of House races if you want to get down to that level. Yeah, so uh, at this point in the Senate, I think that there are seven races that will prove pivotal. Uh, Three of them are Democratic pickup opportunities, four of them are Republican pickup opportunities. Uh, So the Democratic pickup opportunities are in Pennsylvania where, where Pat Toomey is retiring. Um, and uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is up against uh, Dr. Oz. Uh, he's the Republican nominee in that race. He, of course, did earn Trump's endorsement. Um, in North Carolina, there's an open seat, and um, there's a, a kind of a, a Trumpian uh, U.S. congressman named Bud who's running against a former state Supreme Court justice named Sherry Beasley there. Uh, and then in Wisconsin, uh, Ron Johnson, uh, the incumbent senator, is running for re-election, but he's a very controversial senator, and Wisconsin is a very closely divided state. Uh, so that's definitely a race to watch. And we don't know who the Democratic candidate is going to be there because the primary hasn't been held yet. And it's a very competitive primary. Um, but there are more Republican pickup opportunities than Democratic pickup opportunities. So the Republican pickup opportunities are in Georgia where uh, Senator Warnock has, is running for re-election right, because he won a special election two years ago. And so his Senate seat is up for a full six-year term this year. And he's running against the Trump-endorsed former NFL star Herschel Walker, who's been in the news a lot these days. Um, in Arizona, Senator Mark Kelly is running for re-election. Again, he won in a special election two years ago. And he is now running for a full term. We don't know who the Republican candidate's going to be there. Um, in Nevada, uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is running for re-election against um, the former Attorney General of Nevada, Adam Laxalt, who comes from a storied political family there. Um, and then um, 
I, I, I think I would put um, New Hampshire as a fourth pickup opportunity for Republicans. Senator Maggie Hassan is running for re-election there. So, so th those are the seven races that I would uh, focus on first and foremost in regards to the Senate. Yeah, you, you agree with that list, Matt? Yeah, I, I definitely do. And I think the bottom line is that um, the Democrats' chances of holding on to the Senate are real and significant, but it would, it would, they also face an uphill battle. Um, I think what might save them, if, if anything saves them, is the quality uh, or lack thereof of some of the Republican candidates who are running. I think about Georgia. Um, I think about some of the negatives associated with uh, Johnson in Wisconsin. Um, and you know, uh, New Hampshire will be interesting too. I, I watch quite a bit of local television um, in the area and I see plenty of attack ads uh, related to, to that race and, and plenty of um, uh, uh, you know, negative advertising against the incumbent Democratic senator. So that will be interesting and important to watch as well. Yeah, Pennsylvania will be an interesting, probably one of the more entertaining Senate races uh, with John Fetterman, who is who is a quite an interesting character. Uh, if his health holds out, uh, he's the the uh, fellow who was running in the primary uh, against Colin La Colin Lamb, who would the uh, Cong Democratic congressman that had been endorsed by virtually the entire Democratic establishment. Uh, and Fetterman beat him, uh, even spite of the fact that, what is it, two days before the election, Fetterman had a stroke and uh, was uh, in the hospital. Uh, but uh, hopefully Fetterman's recovered and will be in a good shape to run a good campaign in, in, in the fall. You know, against a television personality, Mehmet Oz, uh, who was endorsed by Trump. Uh, so that's going to be a, a fun race to watch. Uh, and also a, a pretty significant one because that could 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 determine uh, who controls the Senate. Um, so so great. Um, anything else about the primaries we ought to touch on before we move on to our next topic, which is uh, Supreme Court decisions? Well, I didn't get a chance to discuss the uh, the Democratic primaries, right? I, I discussed the Republican ones, but not the Democratic ones. And I, I think I think we should probably mention. A little bit about what's going on there, right? The big question among uh, for the Democrats going into these primaries, and this has been the question of the past few election cycles, is uh, to what extent will progressive insurgent candidates uh, win Democratic primaries, either by knocking off uh, kind of more moderate incumbent Democrats or by winning in open seat contests? Uh, and I think that the record here thus far, once again, has been quite mixed, uh, progressive candidates endorsed by Bernie Sanders and so forth have succeeded in winning some of these uh, rate, some of these Democratic primary contests, largely for open seats. Um, they have not won all of the open seat contests that progressives were hoping to win by any means, but they have won some, like for example, in, uh, in Pennsylvania um, and in uh, uh, Oregon. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, they have not had almost any success in knocking off moderate incumbent Democrats. Um, the one exception being also in Oregon, where kind of a, an old school blue dog Democrat named Kurt Schrader lost to a, one of these insurgent progressives. Uh, and so 
I don't see much evidence that we're on the verge of a progressive takeover of the Democratic Party or a progressive takeover of the House Democratic Caucus. I think it's also important to bear in mind that the most kind of far left members of the House Democratic Caucus, um, the members of the so-called squad, right, folks like AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, and so forth, none of them have had their primaries yet. And with the exception of AOC, um, all of them are facing what I would consider to be credible primary challenges. And, uh, and, and they're running in, in reconfigured districts, right? So they're not facing the exact same constituencies. And so I do think it will be interesting to see what happens um, in regards to those particular races when New York and Minnesota and Michigan hold their primaries in August. So I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Final word, Matt? On the primaries? Uh, no, not really. I just, I, I think that I would say that Adam's right about the progressives right now. I think that the sort of the Democratic Party itself is is in a lot of ideological confusion um, and uh, quite a bit of conflict. And, I, and I, I think there's sort of a period of sort of stalemate right now when it comes to the ideological cleavages in the Democratic Party. And so I don't think that the nature of the Democratic candidates that who run in the fall will be too much different um, than what we've been seeing. Yeah, the Democrats never change. Always a lot of inter-party fighting, right? That's the nature of the Democratic Party. Uh, well, let's talk about the Supreme Court. And this, uh, in all my years uh, observing the Supreme Court, I don't ever remember a Supreme Court term that uh, had so many consequential cases uh, as this time. And uh, as I said in my intro, it seems to me, I mean, the, the big takeaway, I would say, is that uh, the conservative majority has made its mark. Uh, and this is a fulfillment of what a 50-year dream of the conservative movement uh, to uh, reconfigure of the Supreme Court, and this term confirmed that they had succeeded in doing that in very significant decisions uh, across the board uh, on the sort of conservative agenda, uh, decisions pushing in the conservative, and I must also add, uh, to give it a partisan spin, a Republican direction uh, in all these decisions. Uh, so what are we to make of this? I'll, I'll jump in on that to start, and, and I'll just say that, yeah, I agree with Bill, the, the culmination of a 50-year dream, but also perhaps the beginning of a 50-year or 40-year run, potentially, of a lot of similar decisions. And so given the age of some of these newer justices, Trump-appointed justices and others, I think that this might be kind of more just the sort of opening, the opening act to... Um, you know, more of the same. Um, the big point that I take away from, you know, all, pretty much all of the significant decisions that have come down um, is the tremendous disconnect with broad public opinion that we've seen, um, especially on abortion and guns, but even on the climate change decision, um, sort of depending on how you measure it, right? So for all the talk of the Supreme Court as a counter-majoritarian institution and in many important ways it is. Um, you know, what the research shows is that, you know, most of the time when the court has made major constitutional decisions that, that are related to public policy, 
uh, it's tracked, you know, broad trends in public opinion. It's maybe sometimes gotten out a little bit ahead of public opinion, but not too far. Right. And I think that the, you know, these decisions are are well outside the parameters um, of, uh, again, especially in abortion and guns. Um, And, you know, uh, they're a huge departure. And I think it's worth thinking about why, right? Like what, what has caused that, that, that kind of departure, right? Uh, given who is on the court and the political conditions that we face. And why? What's your answer? <laughs> well, I, 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 I guess I, I agree. Adam and I have talked about this a little bit previously that um, I think that the possibility that there is account there could be accountability for you know stepping outside the bounds of public opinion like this so egregiously, I think is is virtually nil right now. So I don't think that the justices feel like there could be any real meaningful backlash. I don't mean against them personally, but just politically. Um, and so I think they feel like they can do it right, and they have a free hand. Right. We should maybe talk about a, a possible res- what what responses could be made, but are unlikely to be made. I mean, Congress does have an ability to respond to a court that it sees as outside of the mainstream of public opinion. The Congress has tools constitutionally, right? Uh, Maybe we should talk a little bit about those. Adam, you're our constitutional expert. We'll turn to you to to go over some of that. Well, I don't know about that. But before I I get into uh, those possibilities, I I just kind of I want to really emphasize the extent to which I think anyway, that these Supreme Court decisions of this term represent a true kind of regime level transformation in American politics. We have not seen a court that has been this aggressive in trying to reshape, I would say, the American political process, the American economy, uh, and American culture. Um, to this extent, and certainly in my lifetime, I think that you know one could make the case that the Warren Court in the 1960s was as aggressive as this court seems to be shaping up to being uh, in the other direction, in a progressive direction. Um, but we haven't seen anything like this in the past 50 years. You know, for as long as I've been alive, uh, I would say that both conservatives and progressives have been dissatisfied with the Supreme Court, right? Conservatives were dissatisfied with the Supreme Court over abortion and gay marriage. Progressives were dissatisfied with the Supreme Court over things like campaign finance and voting rights. We're now entering an era where conservatives really should have no cause to be dissatisfied with the Supreme Court. Right? The Supreme Court is now delivering conservatives everything that they have wanted. Um, may you know there may be a few you know minor things in which you know conservatives would like the Supreme Court to go further, and it won't. Um, but I think you know, those sorts of matters are beside the point. Maybe we should get into some of the specifics there. I mean, uh, let's let's begin with abortion. I mean, the the constitutional right to abortion uh, declared in Roe v. Wade in 1973 was decisively overturned, uh, right? And if the decision is quite uh, unequivocal, it's uh, and not only does the decision overturn Roe v. Wade. It attacks the uh, the the arguments in favor of uh, the right to privacy that undergirded Roe v. Wade, which opens up uh, though though 
there's been a lot of discussion of this, even though the decision says, oh, this doesn't mean anything for uh, gay rights or uh, and, 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 uh, uh, and, and the like. Uh, the reality is that uh, if you read the decision uh, honestly, uh, it does open a huge door for uh, essentially rewriting, uh, taking out the right to privacy uh, from uh, constitutional decisions. Uh, am I right about that, Adam? I think that's exactly right. The logic of the decisions uh, of the decision in Dobbs does absolutely point toward uh, the undermining of all of these rights that are based in what's called substantive due process, which we don't need to get into specifically what that term means. But yes, uh, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to contraception. Some people have even argued, I think actually the, the uh, progressives on the court argued that even the right against forced sterilization, which the court ruled on in the 1940s, um, all, of this, all of these rights are based in this concept of substantive due process, which... Um, certainly seems to be called into question uh, by the Dobbs decision. And of course, the conservatives on the court are saying, well, we're not discussing any of those other uh, questions, right? This opinion only relates to abortion. But um, if you think that uh, Supreme Court decisions are guided by any sort of legal logic, <laughs> then you have to wonder where, this, uh, where the legal logic, uh, in what direction the legal logic points. And it does point to certainly uh, the you know the Griswold decision um, banning uh, striking down laws banning contraception and Obergefell um, which struck down state same-sex marriage bans it does point to those decisions potentially being overturned and the judge could say that this only applies to abortion because those other cases haven't come before them yet right but when they do <laughs> we'll see Matt what did you want to say about that yeah I mean I think that the 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 the, the the claim that this only applies to abortion is just is really in many ways absurd on its face in the sense that um, what matters is the, the, the kind of new conceptual box that's been opened up uh, that on which basis further decisions are going to be made. And questioning the, exa I mean, Clarence Thomas, for example, just to take, you know, more, a more extreme example has long denied the existence of a right to privacy, right, as an implied right in the con Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. And so once that gets opened up, right, then these further decisions um, are certainly right on the table. And think about same-sex marriage for a minute. It wasn't that long ago, right, that the court ruled in, uh, in favor of same-sex marriage. Um, and this would be a, you know, stunning kind of reversal. Um, both in terms of, you know, just changing sort of the, the, uh, the basis of legal reasoning and constitutional reasoning um, or, or re rethinking it, but also uh, the disconnect with public opinion I spoke about earlier, because, you know, by the mid 2010s, you know, public opinion in the U.S. was moving decisively in favor of legalized same-sex marriage um, among all groups but you know more so among democrats independents and younger folks etc right but among all groups and there was a building consensus around that and now that consensus is only really solidified i would say if you just look at broad public opinion and should that be right on the on the uh on the chopping block right going forward it would be a, a massive reversal uh so i think it's incredibly important the abortion decision not only for abortion itself but but moving forward uh, and also, there's an interaction between the court and 
uh, state governments uh, and those state governments that are controlled by rather extreme conservatives in some cases. And so uh, you could imagine it would only take a couple of state governments uh, to go to go and pass a, a anti-gay marriage legislation, which would then be challenged in the, in the courts and come to the Supreme Court. And, and that would open up the, uh, the possibility of of overturning Obergefell or, or these other decisions, so so I think it's it's a it's a really uh, it's a really momentous uh, decision. However, one might think about these specific issues, it's clearly a decisive shift. Uh, and on guns uh, as well, if you though the Heller decision has been around uh, that created, I would argue, I don't think it existed before two thousand and eight, but. Uh, 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 Scalia, in his decision, basically created this independent right uh, to possess firearms. Um, and now the court has decisively struck down a regulation. And this, it seems to me, opens up uh, the possibility that the court will continue to strike down uh, gun regulations. Uh, though, again, they disavow uh, the, the, the that uh, that that will necessarily happen, but we're going to have to wait and see because there are going to be challenges to all kinds of gun regulation as a consequence of this. Uh, do you guys agree with? I think that's ab that's absolutely true. Uh, the uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of challenges to gun laws that come through the federal courts and and make their way up to their make their way up to the Supreme Court um, relatively soon, and I think we can expect uh, that more gun laws are gonna be struck down. Um, but before we uh, discuss that decision, I, I do wanna make a point, which I, I, I'm kind of disappointed that uh, very few people have made, um, particularly folks who claim to care about democracy. Um, in regard to the difference between the Dobbs decision um, overturning Roe v. Wade and the Bruin decision, which struck down uh, New York's uh, concealed carry law. you know. The Dobbs decision, what it basically does is overturn Roe v. Wade, which effectively uh, was an overturning of laws passed by Democrat democratically elected legislatures uh, banning abortion. Um, and so what the conservatives on the Supreme Court are saying is we are returning the issue to the democratic process now. Uh, I've been watching a whole lot. I've been observing a whole lot of the progressive response to the Dobbs decision. And one thing that progressive pundits, um, one point that they're making over and over again is, well, it's a fallacy to say that by returning this issue to the states, you're returning it to the democratic process because state legislatures are gerrymandered, for example. So they're not that democratic. Um, and so how can we really rely on them to... Um, implement the people's will um, in regards to the issue of abortion. And look, it's true. Uh, state legislatures are gerrymandered. You know, that's just one way in which our American democracy is imperfect. Um, but I do think that from a democracy perspective, right, it's generally speaking better to have public policy issues decided via the democratic process, the imperfect democratic process, than it is to have public policy issues decided by nine unelected, unaccountable judges. And so I think people who care about democracy should take what the Supreme Court said in Dobbs seriously. 
Now, we know that they're very inconsistent on this because the, uh, the Bruin decision, the gun decision, is, is the exact opposite of the Dobbs decision in this particular vein, right? In that decision, the Supreme Court struck down a law, right, a concealed carry law passed by a democratically elected legislature, the New York legislature, based on, as, as you alluded to earlier, Bill, a very uh, ahistorical and I think most constitutional historians would say just a, a, a wrong reading of the Second Amendment, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, from a democracy perspective, I would suggest that one of these decisions um, is much worse than the other. Uh, and I'll, kind of, I'll just leave it at that. Well, I, I, we should bring up the, uh, the West Virginia versus the EPA decision there, because that, once again, that's a very anti-democratic decision where the court is uh, substituting its view of an issue with the view of the legislature. Uh, at the same time, supposedly defending uh, legislative power. I mean, that's an interesting case where they, they take a piece of legislation, the Clean Air Act, uh, and look at some language and which says uh, the EPA is authorized to develop a system for uh, regulating emissions. And then they decide, well, uh, what the EPA is proposing here is, isn't a system under the meaning of the legislation. They kind of, it's almost arbitrarily deciding, well, even though what the EPA is proposing, I think given a sort of ordinary understanding of system is a system. It says, we think there ought to be this system for limiting carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, in, in, at various states, which involves some caps, uh, state-level caps, uh, which isn't that different from what EPA does with things like sulfur emissions, right? Which the court actually, which, which have been challenged in the court in the past and have been upheld, but the Supreme Court uh, majority just decides, well, these, uh, the, these the, this decision uh, violates what they're now calling our major question doctrine, a doctrine that they make up in this decision. <laughs> it's not appeared in any past court decision. They say, well, this is a major question that's so important that uh, Congress needs to revisit it. Uh, uh, it's a move that was similar to what, uh, and of course, uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion in, in the West Virginia case. And he wrote the majority opinion in, uh, in the, uh, the Shelby County decision, uh, which overturned uh, part of the Voting Rights Act. And again, a similar kind of move, uh, saying the Congress has said, you know, the Voting Rights Act uh, should go forward. And Roberts comes along and says, oh no, it's based upon uh, uh, anachronistic statistics. And therefore, we should overturn it. And you know that's that's kind of an unbridled assertion of you know judicial supremacy. Both those decisions that, from a democratic point of view, are very alarming. And I kind of agree with you, Adam. I, I think I'm I, I'm more, I'm really worried about that uh, to, to a large degree. Uh, um, although uh, the there are things about the um, Dobbs decision that were worrisome, but but those might be more easily correctable through the democratic process than these other things if the court, you know, 
essentially says we're not going to listen to the elected branches at all on these issues. Uh, Matt, do you want to respond to my little sermon there? Yeah, I mean, I have to think about where to start here. I mean, I would just say that the, the levels of inconsistency and in reasoning, to put it most charitably, and to put it at least charitably, levels of maybe hypocrisy on the part of the court are really stunning here. I mean, I think that one thing is the, the issue of, of this recourse to history, which is a big deal right on the court now and increasingly so. We saw that with the abortion decision and the gun decision and others, right? But, you know, uh, and so basically what that seems to suggest, or at least the implication is, is that, you know, rights that were not understood, you know, um, maybe a hundred years ago or so uh, to exist uh, because society was really different then, right? You know, ought not to obtain now, right? And I think that that's, you know, one of the potential implications of this. On the other hand, right, when the Voting Rights Act case, right, uh, was was uh, on the docket 10 or so years ago, uh, right, they're faulting Congress for, or for, for not sort of updating the law, right, to take account of the alleged disappearance of racism or severe uh, decline in it, right? And so uh, it's, it's really all over the place. And the other thing I would say is, you know, when it comes to the EPA decision, it's stunning as well because um, we can't have a functioning democratic government in an advanced capitalist country with all the complex, you know, social and economic questions that that entails without delegating Right. You know, without a delegation of uh, implementation, right, to uh, these regulatory agencies. And was it, we can't, it's not, we don't, Congress has neither the capacity nor the knowledge and expertise to be able to, you know, write laws in such a way that are, you know, so strictly worded, right, that they sort of, um, uh, you know, do the implementing for these agencies. But it, it and so, the court seems to be moving away from allowing that kind of discretion potentially right in future areas of regulation. And now on top of it, you've got the court itself, as Bill said, sort of substituting its own interpretation of what a system is right for the interpretation of the experts and the interpretation of Congress. Right. And so the implications of that are really troubling on many levels going forward. Right. I think the real, the, we, we haven't, seen the end of this either. The door is really open here for the court to step in and uh, eliminate lots of regulations. And not only regulations, I mean, I think there are other kinds of uh, legislation uh, uh, to, to, to mold the economy. I mean, I'm even thinking about things like Social Security here, uh, where the court is essentially saying, uh, you know, we can we can say that that is now, uh, uh, and, and making sort of a, kind of a, manufacturing a constitutional argument to really, I think, promote an ideological objective, you know, which is, uh, these are, uh, I think, six justices in, on this issue uh, that are committed to the idea that uh, American government uh, is too big, that it regulates too much, and that's an ideological position. Uh, and we can argue about that, but they're using their power in the court to promote that. 
and, and dressing it up in these sort of uh, made up constitutional doctrines, uh, including, you know, uh, anyway, uh, I've said enough about that. I would just say in regards to the EPA case, I think the public policy consequences of it are very disturbing. Right? We need the EPA to be able to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in order to combat climate change. And so from that perspective, the EPA decision is, is really bothersome and, and, and is really disturbing. From a democracy perspective, I'm less troubled by it because it's a statutory interpretation case, right? It's, it's the Supreme Court in, interpreting how the Clean Air Act is to be applied. And what that means is that if Congress got its act together, it could fix this very easily, right? Now, is Congress gonna do that? Is it gonna revise the Clean Air Act to specify that the EPA can in fact regulate carbon emissions? No, right? Um, for all of the reasons that we know so well, Congress is polarized and dysfunctional and yada, 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 right? But this does throw the ball back at, in Congress's court, right? And if Congress got its act together, it could do something. And so I don't, from a democracy perspective, I don't view that decision as offensive as the Bruin decision. The Bruin decision, you know, again, based on the Heller decision, declares that the uh, Second Amendment right to bear arms prevent states from having these really restrictive concealed carry laws, such as the one that New York had, right? And there's literally nothing that New York or Congress or anyone can do about that short of a constitutional amendment, which is almost impossible in the American context. Our constitution is so freaking hard to amend. And so I view uh, decisions in which the court strikes down laws based on the constitution is far more problematic than statutory interpretation decisions like the like West Virginia v. EPA, but that's yeah. just me. I'm not as sanguine, Adam, because uh, even if Congress would revisit it, uh, I'm not so sure that this court wouldn't find a way to uh, to strike down these actions anyway. Uh, it's possible. I, I mean, the voting rights decision is is an indicator. I mean, Congress had specifically stated just, I think it was two or three years before the Shelby County decision that they, they renewed the Voting Rights Act and in the legislation voted for, you know, these that, that these that certain states should be subjected to preclearance. And those states and areas were in the law. It wasn't a matter of it's specifically in the statute, but it didn't stop uh, the court. And this is before. You know, yes, our current but, majority, but that, you know, overturning it. Uh, and I, I, I could see them doing that again. Uh, so I, I agree with you, but the Shelby County case was a constitutional interpretation case, right? The, the court, um, again, as you said, it made up this doctrine called um, equal sovereignty. It said that the U.S. Constitution guarantees the state's equal sovereignty. And that's why that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act needs to go, Right. Uh, so, but what prevents them from turning future regulatory decisions into constitutional ones? They may well. And if they do that, I would strongly object. I'm simply saying that this particular decision, okay. based on my theory of what the Supreme Court sh should do, right, is highly okay. offensive. I, in general, think that they should, <laughs> they should not strike down laws based on a reading of the Constitution, right? Yeah. Well, but for them to, to, for them to step in and say how 
laws passed by Congress ought to be applied, that's less objectionable. Yeah. I, I just want to say, I, I know we can't go on forever with this question, but I, I just want to, the, the distinction or the contradiction between the guns issue and the abortion issue is just so stark here when it comes to the, the so-called democratic process. So, you know, I, the way I read those is that um, when it comes to certain public policy areas that are ideologically favored, right, like gun rights, um, you know, there are fundamental rights, right, that cannot be, you know, overridden by the democratic process, right, so says the court. When it comes to other public policy areas, right, like uh, right to bodily autonomy, women's rights to bod bodily autonomy, reproductive rights, those are perfectly acceptable, right, to be reop reopened into the democratic process. And, and the, you know, the reasoning for those, for that distinction is, um, you know, tortured, to say the least. Okay, well, let's, we could go on about this forever, but very quickly, uh, political implications of these decisions. Is this going to, is this going to uh, have, make some difference in some of these elections coming up in the fall? I think, I mean, there's no way to know because we've, as I said earlier, we've never, in, or at least not in my lifetime, maybe not even in yours, Bill, <laughs> um, although, one might say that the Supreme Court was this aggressive in the 1960s. And some people have argued that the Warren Court, via its approach to criminal justice and privacy rights and reapportionment and so forth, did trigger an electoral backlash that did eventually lead to the you know, takeover of the country by the Reagan Republican coalition. Uh, and so, you know, it's conceivable that something similar could happen here, right? This court uh, in being this aggressive could overreach and spawn an electoral backlash uh, that that would have those consequences. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, and the reason I, 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 I doubt that's going to happen is simply because we have now seen that, you know, these kind of sharp divisions that have been a feature of American politics really since 2000 seem more or less intractable and I would say, you know, virtually resistant to almost anything. <laughs> you know, it's very hard for me to see um, how these decisions could cause ma a major shifts in partisan cleavages. You know, we've, we've gone through so much in the past 20 years and for the most part, the, par the, the partisan divisions have remained the same. Um, there have been a few shifts here and there, but I think in the grand scheme of things, we've, we've just been in a very stable era since around the 2000 election in terms of our political divisions in this country. And I, who knows what the future holds, but it's very hard for me to see that changing any time in the near future. And I think that the Supreme Court justices know this. They've calculated that you know it's highly unlikely that their decisions can trigger a backlash that would lead to Democrats gaining such large majorities in Congress that they would actually seriously consider passing any of these court curbing me measures that are being talked about. And so they have you know, concluded that they can more or less get away with doing whatever they want. I, I, I generally agree with that, that analysis. I, I would say that you know, the chances of many people being persuaded to vote differently, right, based on these decisions are, are pretty low, certainly in the, in the numbers that would make a real difference. The only opportunity or potential would more be for sort of mobilizing people, right, especially for the congressional elections who otherwise wouldn't vote. So boosting turnout, 
among groups who are outraged, right? Um, like, and I think about, you know, cli- the climate change thing, I think is, is, is not thought about enough in this context. I mean, I mentioned how far out of step, right, this is with broad public opinion, but among younger voters, it's way, way, way out of step. And so, you know, could there be, you know, could this be a mobilizing opportunity for the Democrats to bring more younger voters out to the polls around climate change, right, where turnout is boosted, especially for a midterm election? We saw it go up a bit in 2018, youth turnout, right? So, you know, and so what difference could that make in some races, right? So, um, you know, you know, as far as being large enough to actually, you know, lead to massive democratic majorities that could lead to restructuring the court, right? That's a, I, I think that's far out of, uh, out of the, the realm of probability. Yeah, but to reinforce Adam's point that uh, the young people who turned out in greater numbers in 2018 and 2020 uh, have seen a, a government that was elected uh, basically gridlocked and unable to deliver on those things, which I think pushes against the mobilization argument. It says, well, you know, they're upset about these issues, but uh, it seems like the government can't do anything about them uh, because of this uh, part of the sharp political divide, but also the structural problems of our government that make it difficult to uh, put together a, a majority uh, in, in Congress. Uh, though, though, what, what about some specific, I would, I would think there are some uh, I'm thinking about the gubernatorial race this fall in Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin. Uh, I would think the Dobbs decision might have some marginal effect uh, helping the Democrats in those states. I think that's true, especially because um, in Wisconsin, there's a, a, an abortion ban that was passed by the Wisconsin legislature in 1849 uh, that has now gone into effect. And it's, from my understanding, a complete abortion ban, right? Every uh, abortions in all cases, except to uh, save the life of a mother, are um, illegal in Wisconsin now. And so uh, that could, in, in that particular state, have an impact on the governor's race. I'm certain that the incumbent Democratic governor, Tony Evers, is going to make that a, an issue against whoever his opponent is. But, um, he will say that as long as he's governor, he's going to make it his goal to overturn this law that's over 150 years old at this point. Um, so there, there, there could be uh, kind of electoral consequences of that nature. Okay, well, no, enough about court decisions. Um, let's talk just a little bit about these very interesting hearings that have been going on. Uh, and I don't want to get into the details of you know, who testified and, and what was their testimony, credible, et cetera. Uh, but I am interested in kind of the broader pub, uh, political implications. Uh, and to start off, uh, I must say, I, I was, had very low expectations uh, for the hearings, uh, thinking that they would probably not gain that much attention. But that seems not to be the case. Uh, right, Matt, that the media strategy of the committee seems to have been kind of successful. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I agree. I had very low expectations. Um, and I, I would say that it's been just about as successful as anyone could have hoped for, right? I think there are structural obstacles in the way of gaining attention and, and sort of information flows, right? Flow, you know, getting to large segments of the country. 
Um, you know, viewership of the of the hearings was, um, you know, uh, at least according to self-reported measures, you know, um, around 30 to 40 percent, you know, watching some of the hearings, which is not doesn't sound like a lot. But in today's media environment, that's a lot. That's like a very huge audience. Right. For something like this. Nothing like we saw with Watergate. Right. But that was an entirely different time politically and media wise. But the media strategy and the overall strategy, I was really impressed with. Right. By the managers of the hearings what that easily could have devolved, what, what it could easily have evolved, devolved into, excuse me, is a lot of pontificating on the part of members of Congress uh, and, and rhetoric and not enough attention, concrete attention, right, to the sort of basic facts, the situation and the testimony, right? And they did a great job of really focusing in on the, on the testimony and, you know, um, in a way that I think positioned them as best as possible to get across the really egregious nature of the transgressions of democracy that occurred in ways that are kind of pretty understandable in most cases to I think ordinary Americans. So not too arc arcane and sort of, you know, getting into, you know, too much in the way of uh, sort of tortured sort of legal theories and things like that. Um, so they were successful on that front. Um, what the implications might be down the road, I think that that's another question. Do you think, Matt, that the hearing presentation might have been almost too slick that is that they they so smoothly present these uh, th this testimony uh, the cutting back and forth to the videotape testimony and then the live testimony uh, I'm wondering whether or not that might uh, create some kind of uh, skepticism on part of viewers that uh, that they're not hearing the whole story. I, I mean, for some it might, but I mean, this is it, this is this gets into the broader questions of just, you know, there there was a lot of opposition or or at least criticism of well, you know, the the former president, for example, saying this is sort of a sham, right, and it's not it's not fair, right. But the Republicans had an opportunity, right, to put on reasonably credible members, right, uh, and they just decided when they couldn't get on, you know, election denialists, basically, which is what they wanted to pack it with, that they were just going to pack up, right? And which is what they did. And now they're complaining that it's not fair, right? And so I think my point is that I think that those sorts of criticisms, you know, um, might uh, lead some viewers to look askance at the hearings, you know, in terms of, you know, are we not getting both sides, quote unquote, but it was it was guaranteed to be this way by the Republican, you know, the Republican leadership choosing to treat the 2020 or the, the 2020 election, but the 2021 uh, uh, Capitol uh, insurrection the way it did. So Matt, what, what's your view of the hearings? I mean, Adam, sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I mostly agree with what Matt said. I think they have turned out better than expected. I think the presentations have thus far been quite good. The, the witness testimonies, have been uh, very compelling. Uh, I I don't think, well, for, I'll, I will say two things. First of all, I think viewership, particularly on the first night um, when, you know, the it was, it was actually held on primetime TV, viewership was quite high then. My understanding is that it's dropped off significantly. Now this is maybe to be expected because a lot of the hearings have since then been held during the daytime when people work and so forth. 
but still, I think even controlling for that or even taking that into account, um, the, the hearing viewership has declined quite substantially. I don't think it's holding the public's attention as much as maybe Democrats would have hoped. And I don't think it's had much uh, impact on public opinion thus far from, from what I've seen anyway. Uh, the uh, you know, public perceptions of Trump uh, uh, views on whether Trump committed a crime in the events leading up to January 6th. Uh, none of those things have changed all that much. And in the long run, I, I just sort of doubt that this is going to have a big impact. Uh, you know, a lot of people are hoping that this uh, may cause Trump to fade. I think Trump may well be fading. Uh, but if he is, it's not because of these committee hearings. And so, in the, and we can talk about that more, but I think that just as a general matter, the long run implications of this are, are pretty small. Matt? I, and, and so I basically, I largely agree with Adam about the, the, the public opinion aspect of this. I mean, there is a potential, we disagree about this. There is a potential, I believe that some folks, some independents and moderates small a smaller portion of the electorate as they may be who you know generally had a sense that what went on uh, were, were certainly against the insurrection and and had a sense that they didn't like trump etc but it wasn't a real salient issue for them i think the hearings might have helped to sort of crystallize for some of those folks that just how egregious right these violations were because it's really it's really you know quite stark and may potentially uh, motivate some of those folks to vote Right. Um, who otherwise wouldn't. Right. Just to keep, you know, um, uh, someone like Trump himself or someone like Trump right out of power in the future. Longer term, to me, the thing that we haven't talked about yet is is the possibility of criminal prosecutions here. And I don't you know, I, I don't have the expertise to argue from a legal basis, but from a political perspective, I think that if these result, and of course, it's not the committee's decision, it's the Justice Department decision in criminal prosecutions of major figures involved um, up to and potentially including the former president, that would be a huge, right, important implication politically, especially because the avenues of accountability are getting, you know, narrower and narrower, right? And so one potential avenue of accountability is to send a message that, any future uh, elected official, state, right, elect, elected official, secretary of state, the state level, governor, state legislator, member of Congress, presidential candidate, who steps over these lines or is thinking about doing so in the future, say in 2024, thinks twice, right, is deterred from doing so because they might actually be subject to the rule of law, right? They might actually have a criminal sanction with some sort of teeth, right? So if there's criminal uh, prosecution that comes out of this, that in and of itself could serve an important democratic small d right role in staving off right um any uh manipulations uh that uh, are are being pondered i think i agree with you matt i uh, i think we've already seen that the pressure on the justice department i think has gone up considerably by these hearings that is i think before the hearings uh there wasn't much attention being paid to what the Justice Department was going to do. And there was kind of an expectation that, well, probably they're not going to pursue any of this. Uh, this is past history. And, and uh, these, the outcome of these 
cases is so uncertain that there's no reason to pursue it. But I think that shifted. And, and also, I think, speaking of the public opinion notion, uh, the hearings I do think have had an impact on some elite opinion, particularly kind of the, the moderate to, to liberal segment of the, the pundocracy, the pundits. Uh, I, there have been a number of articles I've read where uh, a pundit will write, well, before these hearings, I didn't think, you know, judicial criminal pursuit of any of this was, was wise. It's not good for our country. But this is, was so egregious that now I've changed my mind. Let, let me just jump in one more thing. I know Adam might want to say something here, but about the public opinion aspect of this, right? So one of the reasons that ha they haven't got as much attention is because there's been essentially counter-programming uh, to a massive segment of the American population, Fox News, and then, you know, even more strongly, right, some of the corners of, you know, other news outlets and, uh, and online, et cetera, in this sort of right-wing media ecosystem have not only, you know, just ignored the hearings and, and, de and denigrated their importance, but have, but have cast out, right, and, and, and also, in some cases, circulated, you know, misinformation about them. Nevertheless, they've gotten significant attention. And in the broad American public, it, it's, it's amazing that, you know, a solid majority of Americans think that, that uh, the former president did break the law. Right. And so imagine if the media environment were a little different and we were a little less polarized, what that percentage would be. And that's amazing that such a significant proportion of Americans would say that a former president, right, ought to be criminally liable. I, I think that it, this has all become really normalized for us now. It's, it's really astounding. Um, and so the question is, this is not to say that prosecutors should make their decisions on whether to prosecute or not based on public opinion. I'm not saying that, but it's fascinating from a democratic perspective, right, um, how that decision, right, is going to come down uh, because uh, it's, I think the stakes are huge. And the hearings have even focused, focused Trump's attention more on the 2020 election. And already there were some Republicans saying that, well, Trump was talking too much about that. He's in the past, and uh, uh, there's some evidence even, you know, from some of the, even his supporters, you know, in, in the mass public being unhappy with him talking all the time about the 2020 election. And, and I, I think it may have emboldened a bit people like Ron DeSantis or Youngkin in Virginia to, to pursue more, uh, pursue perhaps challenging Trump. Uh, in, the, in the primaries, that, that they're seeing Trump as potentially vulnerable uh, in, in, in primaries. There's this recent poll in New Hampshire, uh, Adam, right, that shows Trump and DeSantis neck and neck? Yeah. Um, in fact, it shows DeSantis slightly ahead. And so uh, the question is, to what extent uh, the, these hearings have contributed to that? And my guess is not very much. Right? I think Republican primary voters may be starting to move away from Trump. This poll would suggest that they are. Uh, and, if, and to the extent that's happening, I think it's largely because, you know, in, in our current media environment in which so much is being thrown at us all at once, um, even somebody like Trump cannot maintain the attention of the Republican base forever. Um, 
And I think just a lot of re, uh, Republican voters, including hardcore Trump supporters, are starting to move on. And more than that, I think a lot of Republican voters are starting to come to the conclusion that th their main goal, right, in, in supporting Trump in the first place, which was they wanted a fighter, you know, somebody that would, you know, take on the liberals, own the libs, and so on and so forth. Uh, there might actually be people out there who are better situated to do to to do that than Trump, right? I mean, who people who might actually be a lot more effective in um, you know in destroying the liberal establishment than Trump. Uh, certainly, DeSantis seems like he could be a lot more effective, and so you know, to me, that's why I think we're seeing these shifts. Uh, in 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 support for Trump among Republicans, it's not it's not because it suddenly dawned on these people just how bad what Trump was doing in the lead up to January sixth was. It's because they're just getting a little tired of him. They're ready to move on, and they think that there's actually a better alternative um, in terms of you know implementing their in terms of you know somebody who can actually implement their goals. Um, I do agree with Matt though that that the criminal prosecution piece is an important one. And that um, if, uh, you know, these hearings result in Merrick Garland deciding to pursue criminal charges against Trump, then, then that is obviously extremely significant. And it could have those salutary effects that Matt, Matt was talking about. Um, on the other hand, and I know that this is not what should, and I, this is not what should uh, guide Garland's decision, Right, the real decision, the, the decision should be purely based on whether or not there's a sufficient evidence that Trump broke the law. But it's possible that, you know, from a political perspective, you know, Trump is starting to fade due to these other factors that I was mentioning, but that a criminal prosecution of him would, you know, turn him into a martyr and sort of reestablish his centrality among Republican voters. And so I, I would worry a little about that. From a political perspective, yeah, and there's also, I mean, the political danger. Uh, whenever defeated candidates are prosecuted in a democracy, you have to you have to worry a bit that this would become a norm, uh, and you can imagine, uh, you know, God forbid, Trump were reelected in 2024, him turning around and coming up with some excuse to prosecute Biden. Or Hillary Clinton. That's a real concern and a real risk, right? What what Bill just said in terms of setting the precedent. On the other hand, I mean, you know, I don't think somebody like Trump needs the excuse of him, you know, to, to do what you suggested. More broadly, I mean, we're in, we're facing a situation with no good choices here for democracy right now because the risks of all kinds of uh, strategies are real and significant. It's, it's just a matter of like which risks are more worth taking, right, than other risks. And so, you know, certainly, you know, backlash, increased polarization and division, right? If Trump were uh, prosecuted or indicted, um, but you know, maybe that is necessary. Right on the road to ultimately, you know, uh, a better democracy. Right down the road, and we don't have any chance for any kind of real political healing in this country unless there's accountability where accountability is due. There can be no healing without accountability, and that's there's going to be some risks, right, that come with that all around. But it's it's a it, it, it's a tough situation. Well, maybe those are two good words to end our discussion on. Uh, there's a lot more we could say about American politics. 
we'll probably have to get together in the fall before the midterms and talk some more about uh, the prospects of the various parties. We'll have more data at that point. Being political scientists, data is good, right? So uh, uh, we'll, we'll continue this conversation then, but, uh, but uh, uh, I, think, uh, I think we've had a good talk here. So thanks Agreed. to Professor Adam Myers, Professor Matt Guardino. Uh, thanks. We'll see you next time.